The pioneering artist and photographer Peter Britt settled in Jacksonville, Oregon. The site of his home is now a county park and home to the Britt Music Festival. New research into what the Britt family ate will help us better understand daily life in the region over a century ago. SOU's Chelsea Rose is back with Underground History. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between JPR and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today we're sticking closer to home and within my wheelhouse, sort of. The Brick Gardens archaeological site is located in Jacksonville, Oregon, which was established following the discovery of gold in the early 1850s. Peter Britt, a Swiss-German immigrant and accomplished photographer, settled on a hill overlooking the community in 1852 and documented the region as it changed over the course of his life. Today, his homestead is a public park and home to the world-renowned Brit Music and Arts Festival. Sula has conducted several archaeological projects at the site over the past decade and a half, and we've learned a lot about the life of the family and their legacy, and we've even nominated the site to the National Register. However, up until now, thousands of artifacts have still remained unanalyzed. I'm speaking today with Sula's in-house zooarchaeologist, Katie Johnson, about a recent grant she received to analyze those thousands of pieces of animal bones that once graced the dinner table of one of Southern Oregon's most famous residents. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. So to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about zooarchaeology? And this is the archaeological study of zoos, right? <laughs> Not quite. Okay, that was a trick. <laughs> Um, so zooarchaeology is the study of food remains, so animal, uh, fish, shellfish, anything that people were eating. Okay, that's that's cool. That's an important part of the archaeological process, I think, to figure out what people were eating. So you got this grant from Oregon Heritage, and this is a, a part of the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which has a series of grants to help with the restoration and research projects on museums, old buildings and archaeological sites, all things heritage. This is your third Preserving Oregon grant under that umbrella, right? Correct. Well, technically, I have a heritage grant and two Preserving Oregon grants. Okay, go you. <laughs> Woohoo! So can you tell us a little bit more about what you plan to do with these funds? Uh, yes. So the funnel analysis is a very detailed process, and it takes a lot of time uh, and energy. So the funds will be used to help cover the time that it takes to do this type of analysis. So the collection will be gone through very carefully. Every single um, item within the uh, food remains will be analyzed. Uh, we'll look at you know what type of animal it is, um, what element of the skeleton it is, and um, what that translates into as food. Awesome. So this type of funding is really important to the state because it provides um, support with these types of projects and disaster recovery, maintenance on vulnerable buildings, and this, this kind of research that's really often underfunded and there's not the time to do this kind of stuff. So these types of grants are a lot of times the way these, these specialized analyses get funded. Is that correct? Yeah, very much so. Um, as I mentioned, it's really time-consuming. Um, there's not a lot of people who specialize in this field. So being able to have funding to actually do this type of analysis provides an opportunity to um, really delve into more aspects of what the archaeological record is telling us that otherwise wouldn't be available. And so now I'm going to kind of... Uh 
get to the so what of this. So you've got this money to do this specialized time-consuming analysis. And I just want you to talk a little bit about how these old food bones can tell us about the past. So it's more than just meal time. You're looking at larger questions like market access, immigrant experience. And, and so can you talk a little bit about how you translate a pork chop into something that abstract? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I feel like the Peter um, Brick Funnel Collection is unique because it represents a really long time frame. So we have um, an assemblage that ranges from the 1860s up into um, the early 1900s, and that allows us to see what they were eating at specific moments and how that changed over time throughout this long period. And that's pretty unique for um, a lot of sites in this area. So that gives us a really good idea of the family and how um, the choices that they were making in relation to food may have stayed the same or changed between the time when Peter Britt first came and settled in Jacksonville and when he had a family there um, up until the early 1900s. Yeah, so I remember when we were doing the excavation, we found two middens or garbage dumps, and one of them was kind of in front of what would have been the original cabin, and we are assuming, based on its placement, um, that it would have been much older than another one we found behind the house. So you will look at the two different assemblages and compare you know, how he was eating when he was a bachelor living there and then how the family was eating um, later on. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, correct. And then beyond that, we have other assemblages within Jacksonville that are contemporary with Peter Britt's occupation of the site that can be used as a comparison. Um, and these represent other uh, immigrant populations. So that's a unique comparison that we have just for neighboring individuals. And then this study will also actually be used as a comparison to studies across the state and um, across the the Pacific Northwest, uh, ideally, um, as it'll be incorporated into some larger studies that we have going on that look at um, DNA, isotopic analysis, and are really trying to understand not only what the people were eating and the foods, but um, where those uh, foods were coming from. Yeah, so if you've got multiple um, faunal data from different parts of Jacksonville, you and you know that there's the same stores, they're the same time period, and then then that's when you can really look at okay, if if the location's the same, the time period's the same. So what's different is the people that are buying or making these different dishes. Correct. Yeah. So you could be looking at um, ideas of associated with um, personal choice. Um, we have different immigrant populations who are bringing their own ideas of what food is and how that relates to um, their social atmosphere, the um, political atmosphere, markets. Um, So it can give us a lot of additional information outside of just what they were putting on their dinner plate each night. Yeah. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of the history of our region and beyond. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with Katie Johnson about her work using animal bones to recreate past meals and much, much more. So... You've looked at some of the store ledgers, and in addition to the archaeology, you've done some other research to kind of understand, like, where these bones might be coming from. Like, who's raising 
pork, who's, you know, importing different foods. Can you speak a little bit about that, how you've incorporated that into your research? Uh, yeah, sure. So I've spent a lot of time at the Historical so Society and looking through old newspapers and stuff, um, trying to determine, you know, where this food was coming from. We have a variety of native species available in our region, um, which could have been obtained by just local hunters, and that was very common. We have a lot of fish species in our local rivers. Um, but then we also have some pretty large industries that developed rather quickly as people started to settle, resettle this area. And that includes like the importation of pork. So we have documentation uh, in the historical record of herds of pigs being brought up from California and then established in um, Jacksonville and the surrounding area. And then who they were selling um, those pigs to and how they were raising them, including what type of food they were raising them um, on and then um, from there, we also have documentation of the pigs then being moved outside of this region into um, more remote areas as uh, resettlement continued. And I remember when we were out in the field, it looked like that older midden had like more like deer or elk or something kind of bones in it. And then the other one had more like domesticated species that were like butchered more formally. Is that kind of what you would expect to see over time? Uh, yeah. So, you know, as their early resettlement of the region occurred and, you know, they were, Jacksonville was just developing. There wasn't as many established markets. This is before the railroad came through, um, less uh, importation of uh, foods that aren't raised locally. So um, that would definitely be more expected to see like more native species. And then, um, or even types of cuts that um, would have occurred as people were um, maybe butchering the animals themselves rather than buying portions of meat from a local butcher shop. And then, of course, as the community develops, um, more uh, industry comes in, we have the railroad coming in, then you have a lot more importation of uh, non-native local species and um, different types, types of foods, cuts of meat um, that would have been available um, much more easily than originally. You talked a little bit about food is like a personal choice, and it really reflects like, um, you know, culinary traditions and probably skill in the kitchen even, comfort food, all that. But it can also reflect um, shared meals and, and the way that people make and reinforce relationships or show off or, or traditions, you know, like celebrations. Or, you know, I know with um, in Jacksonville, a lot of times there's the, the Lunar New Year celebration is a time when re people really gather together. So how, how could you see that, not just in the Brit, but in the archaeological um, assemblage in general? Would that just be like, cuts that reflect like big roasts or, or how can you kind of reflect um, what types of meals are being um, made and, and um, consumed in the archaeological record just through the bones? Uh, yeah, so in looking at the um, food remains, we can definitely see uh, like instances of large meals being prepared. Um, and in that case, yes, you might have like larger cuts of meat that were prepared as a roast or in a stew type setting. Um, you also might get um, more foods that are considered um, higher quality for this type of event. You know, you're not going to serve um, your cheaper cuts of meat to, you know, the family that you're trying to impress. You're going to look to uh, provide uh foods that really represent your status within your um, society. You're going to bust out the fancy steak for those yeah. dinners. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so you also might see like the importation of foods that you wouldn't be able to get locally. Um, and that could include something like 
turtle or specialized yeah, imported like stuff. shellfish. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a big shellfish market, um, stuff like that. And so that's another part of the other lines of research that you use because food, the economic scale of food can can change depending on where you are and what's available. So stuff maybe that's cheaper here because it's easier to get would be really expensive somewhere else. So can can you see that from like the journals and some of the newspaper articles, like what stuff might have been cheaper? And that's how you can kind of tell like status or economic status from food. Uh, yeah. So um you know, it's really, we're really lucky to have the Southern Oregon Historical Society here and the um, documents that are present within it and looking through a lot of store ledgers and stuff, you actually see the prices, um, the people's names written down that have are purchasing those foods. So you see those interactions between the community. Um, and then, yeah, looking at uh, like the, the economics of it and the market availability and how that changed over time. And you, the um, development of the railroad, of course, drastically changed the foods that were e- we, the people were eating um, it, with the uh, ability to import foods from distant markets. Um, then, of course, refrigeration drastically changed that on top of that. So you see a lot of changes in these key um, factors throughout history that um, really um, designate how... Um, those changes occurred. Yeah. And so I just have one more question for you. So how do you do this analysis? So even I can tell a bird from a cow, but what kind of resources do you need to really tell the more fine grain, like what species it is? Is it a juvenile? Is it, you know, how do you, how do you really get to the, the detailed analysis of all these different broken, small pieces of bone? Yeah. So, um, part of the reason why this is such a time consuming process is because we don't get like nice whole cuts of food. You don't get a whole bone we get a lot of fragmented bone. And so you start out by identifying, you know, just your broadest taxonomic groups. Is this a mammal? Is it a bird? Is it a fish? Um, and then of course we have to try and look at all these little tiny pieces and determine as far down the line as we can, what they are and how they were being um, used within our food choices. So we have, um, at Sula, we have, uh, in-house, um, faunal standards collection that we've um, created through a scientific taking permit, which allows us to collect specimens and then um, process them with our partners at the um, uh, forensics lab here in Ashland. And then we have those available for us um, as we do our research as a comparative to the bones we're seeing and trying to identify them. Um, We use a lot of online resources as well and books, of course, but um, the in-house comparative collection is really key to um, the analysis that I do. That's awesome. So this wraps up this round of Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. Our producers are Angela Decker and Charlie Zimmerman. And Katie, thanks so much for joining us. I'll let you get back to the the bones now. So (laughs) we look forward to seeing what you find. Um, You can find Underground History online at Jeff Exchange or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts.